Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm joined once more by Peter Hart. Hello. My ass. And today, Pete, what is it today? Well, we're doing, it's another, in our long stat going uh, Jutland series. It hasn't been going a long time yet. No, we've done one. Yeah, this is the second one. And this one's the background to the battle 1914 to 1916. So last week, or last week, whenever it was, we set the scene. You're doing yeah. really well. Oh, yeah. I don't like to uh, set too high a standard early on, Gary, because then we just... Oh, you're succeeding. <laughs> and uh, so we, 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 we sort of set the, the big background. And now this time we, we're going to take uh, through the first two years of the war, lead from 1416. Uh, so um, now where we left it was that uh, Admiral Sir John uh, Jellicoe had rather controversially taken over... Uh, command of the Grand Fleet, as it became, in August 1940, replacing uh, Callaghan, uh, Admiral Callaghan, who I think was George, but I'm not quite sure. No, I think you're right, George Callaghan. Um, now, what did he take over, Gary? I mean, you've got the photographic memory here. What, what exactly was the Grand Fleet at that time, omitting the names of no ship? Well, I've also got a list. <laughs> well, there were 21 dreadnoughts, uh, LC... Delcy, Dulcy, Lucy. Get on with it! Uh, eight pre-dreadnoughts of the King Edward class and four battle cruisers. There was also a melange <laughs> of 21 cruisers and some 42 destroyers. I mean, that's massive. Yeah, it's bigger than the fleet now then, is it? Uh, well, yes. The, the destroyers alone are bigger than the fleet now, I think. Now, um, we, we also need to introduce somebody. So we, 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 well, last time we talked quite a lot about uh, uh, John Jellicoe. Uh, so who's the, new, who's the new kid on the block? Well, in command of the first battlecruiser squadron was a man whose future was to become inextricably linked with Jellicoe. And that is Vice Admiral Sir David Beattie. David Beatty was born on the 17th of January 1871, the second son of an influential Irish family who had taken root in Cheshire. Interestingly, his parents were not married as his mother's divorce wasn't received until February 1871, a month after he was born. Gasp. 
Yes, shocking, isn't so, it? So uh, he was a bastard literally as well as figuratively. Whatever figuratively means, yeah. Now, he passed through uh, Britannia, which is, I presume, HMS Britannia, between 1884 and 1885, but he achieved little of consequence other than a burgeoning reputation for a sort of carefree misbehaviour. It's a bit like your own military career. Nothing like mine. He would never have made large Yours wasn't several care- times. Yours wasn't carefree, was it? No. <laughs> Now, family influence brought him a, 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 a sojourn as a midshipman aboard the Alexandria, which was then the flagship of the Mediterranean fleet. But uh, poor examination results meant that his career was effectively stalled as a lieutenant on a variety of what you describe as mundane postings that gave no indication of glowing future. But some of those postings included things like, for example, HMS Warspite, and he also <sighs> served on the Royal Yacht uh, HMY Victoria and Albert in uh, 1892, I think. I've been looking at internet. Uh-huh. Now, uh, well, well, so what changed it round? Well, in 1896, uh, he, he has a, 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 a spot of luck, really. Um, um, he, 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 he's appointed as second in command of the river gunboats that go up the Nile to help... Uh, Kitchener, you know, you know, who's a Sirdar, um, in their campaign to av- avenge the death of General Charles Gordon, uh, and to recapture Khartoum. Now, all that had happened years before. So this is a belated revenge. Now, the first instalment of the protracted campaign was an exciting boy's own affair. <laughs> and after his commanding officer was seriously wounded, Beatty took over command. Yeah, he's, lo- he's, that is fortunate for him, not so fortunate for the- <laughs> and he does well. What, what what do you think people notice about him most? Well, his leadership qualities, and he's recalled at Kitchener's special request when the campaign was resumed in 1897. Well, this is the actual advance for, you know, towards the Battle of Atbara and then the Battle of Omdurman, which was... Uh, what date was the Battle of Omdurman, Gary? Come on, go, go. 2nd of September, 1897. And, of course, we're all awaiting my book and my delayed book on the... <laughs> Oh, and uh, the sedan uh, coming up. Um, so what, what what are the gunboats doing? Why, why are they so important? Well, they had a, a, a really quite dramatic role, scouting along the river ahead of the main army and providing support fire during the many skirmishes, which culminated, as you rightly say, in the Battle of Omdurman on the 2nd of September 1897. Beatty's contribution was marked by early promotion to commander and the award of the DSO. So from that point, his, his name's effectively made. Yeah, next next commission, he's executive officer aboard the Barfleur uh, on the China station, and there he runs into more trouble. And and this is something that we both found quite fascinating. Uh, uh, who? What? 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 Well, as with Jellico, he's drawn into the uh, the strange farrago of the uh, Boxer Rebellion. Yeah, we're not going to explain that again. You have to listen to the first podcast again. Uh, also, I've forgotten all about it, really. Uh, well, we'll go into some detail. Beatty was landed with a party of 150 naval personnel from the bar floor to strengthen the impromptu naval brigade that was defending Tientsin from a mixed force of Chinese regular troops and the revolting boxers. They were revolting, they were. Oh. Revolting. Uh, he, he does well, uh, distinguishes himself, if you like, during the fighting, uh, until on 19th of June, uh, he's wounded in the uh, left arm. That's this one, Gary. Now, he soon discharged himself from the confines of hospital and he 
joined an expedition to rescue the remnants of the naval column, which included the wounded Jellicoe. I remember he got a bullet He's through the lung. He got a very lung. severe wound. No, it was a bad one, wasn't it? We like that because the doctor said, ah, oh, no, you've had it, mate. <laughs> yeah, basically, you're buggered. Uh, a technical term. Technical term. There's a lot in the Navy. Now, on his return to London, our wounded hero courted social opprobrium but gained a fortune when he married the extremely wealthy American heiress and recent divorcee, Ethel Tree. That was in May 1901. Hmm. She came from a branch of the Tree family. <laughs> you prepared that one earlier, haven't you? No, <laughs> you can tell. Yeah. Now, he doesn't go back to sea until he's appointed as captain on a series of cruises between 1902 and 1905. Um, he's he's ahead of the game, isn't he? He'd had a bad start, but he's ahead of the game, isn't he? He is. And uh, what helps him? Well, the rapid expansion of the navy, uh, because it's expanding, it keeps him ahead of the pack, as it were. So once you're ahead, you're likely to stay ahead. Well, you are in those circumstances. And uh, the Admiralty appointment as the naval advisor to the Army Council then occupies him from 1905 to 1908. Then from late 1908, he's given command of the pre-dreadnought, the Queen, HMS Queen. That's part of the Atlantic uh, fleet. Now here, there's a first sign of something that's quite interesting because he uh, he moans a lot. What does he moan a lot? He observes a lot about the private uh, about the uh, the marked tactical rigidity employed in handling the fleet. We've commented on this before. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it, we'll come back to that. Uh, now he still impresses the powers that be, and on first. January 1910, he's made an admiral. Uh, now, that's uh, that's pretty young, age of 38. Uh, that, why, why does that ring a bell with me? Well, I think, I think it's because it Dung. mirrors, it mirrors Nelson's achievements Dung. in 1797. I'm in trouble. <laughs> so he's making comparisons already to, to being Nelson, although he dressed better. Yeah. Now, in 1911, there's a bit of a, a career-threatening spat. Uh, Beatty's a rich man. And what does he do? Well, he refused to accept second fiddle as second in command of the Atlantic fleet. However, he'd overreached himself and he might well have spent a considerable time ashore without a posting had he not been lucky in the timing of Churchill's appointment as First Lord of the Admiralty in October 1911. Yeah. Now, what I didn't realise was that he was on half pay and uh, ultimately that could have led to him being placed on the retired list. It was that serious. Mm. Now, why would why, what Churchill... It, <laughs> Beatty's just the sort of chap he'd like, isn't he? You know, um, and uh, he appoints uh, 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 Beatty to be uh, his naval secretary. Um, and for once in his life, and that's a, a bit of an insult, but Beatty works hard, doesn't he? He does. He, and he made considerable progress in understanding the new language of naval warfare. And he had the mental strength to stand up to Churchill where necessary without provoking a fatal falling out. Now, now, Churchill, that, that he loves some doing, uh, frankly. Well, he does, doesn't it? I mean, Churchill's a very difficult man to work with, but he's more than satisfied with Beatty, and uh, he, he, he gives him a plum posting. Uh, what is it? Well, he appoints uh, his protégé above the heads of many other more senior officers to the plum command of the battlecruiser fleet. So it was that on the 1st of March 1914, Beatty hoisted his flag aboard the ship that was to become synonymous with his name. The Lion. 
Yeah, 13.5-inch battlecruiser, uh, gun battlecruiser. And uh, it's interesting, he's appointed, in a sense, before uh, before uh, Jellico. Uh, you know, Jellico had been second in command. Anyway, um, now, uh, what is the Grand Fleet in August 1914? What is it, Gary? Well, it's the sharp tip of the British naval iceberg. Elsewhere, scattered across the globe, were hundreds of miscellaneous ships busy on the manifold duties of king and empire. In particular, there were three more battlecruisers engaged in their original function of clearing the sea lanes by hunting down Germany's detached cruisers. Yeah, and if you think you know about this, we both know about this. There's the Gorbon, the German battlecruiser Gorbon, and, and the light cruiser uh, Breslau. Where are they floating about? Well, they're abroad in the Mediterranean, while the German East Asiatic Squadron posed a considerable threat further that, afield. That's Von Spee, the Scharnhorst, the We've done a podcast on that. Uh, yeah. So uh, um, the main German forces, they were they were known as the High Seas Fleet. And remember, they can pick their moment when they're all available. Uh, so how many could they deploy at full strength? Because that's the only figure that matters. And would you like me to name these? Uh, yeah, you'd really struggle with that. <laughs> 13 dreadnoughts, 16 pre-dreadnoughts, five battlecruisers, 17 cruisers and 88 destroyers. Now, where are they? They're, they're based at, mainly at Wilmshaven, uh, and that's uh, Germany's main port on the North Sea coast. Uh, and it's linked by the recently c- completed, and we actually said that the gold conspiracy theory that war would come in 14 when it was finished, Kiel Canal. Where does the Kiel Canal go to, Gary? Uh, Kiel. Uh, where is that? It's on the Baltic Sea. Oh, I was not one to see. Yeah, you wouldn't. You'd probably serve there. Actually, thinking about near it anyway. Now, after a decade of fevered speculation and anticipation, the general public and uh, no small proportion of the fleet expected there to be a huge Mahanian naval battle to resolve the command of the seas Why? within days of the outbreak of war. Why we call it Mahanian? Does well, anybody remember from our first podcast? Yeah, and, and that was the suggestion that there would, you know, two great fleets would come out and seek each other. Uh, to have this deciding battle, but of course there was a counter view, and that that's that's the the thinking of, of Alfred Mahan, the the American American naval historian yeah. and very influential chap. Now, uh, what would trigger this Armageddon, or as Spike Milligan said, Armageddon on out of here? Well, it would be the dispatch of the British Expeditionary Force across the Channel to take up its agreed place alongside the French Army in the war against Germany. Now, uh, so th- th- some people thought the high seas fleet would emerge to contest the crossing. Uh, did that happen? Did it? Did it? Did it? Or was there another school of naval thought? Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps you could name who that was. Well, you're referring to uh, Corbett's Julian prediction. Corbett, yeah. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the Germans did decline to sacrifice their navy at the altar of popular British sentiment, and they remained safely in harbour as the BEF crossed the Channel. I've noticed that the Germans are often unwilling to, uh, to do what the British, pu- great British public want. <laughs> now, German strategy was based firmly on securing an early victory. Now, we don't need to go into this too much, but we know about the Schieffelen plan, whether you believe in it or not, but it's what happened anyway. Uh, they, they planned to evade, wheel through uh, Belgium, uh, smash the French armies, uh, capture Paris within weeks and eliminate France before they turned on the Russians. Uh, so uh, what the, 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 is the BEF a big part of this that we're sending? 
No, German general staff was confident that the BF would have a negligible impact on the outcome of the overall campaign in the West. Yeah. The BF was a minnow alongside the uh, Leviathan conscript armies of Germany and France. And that's true. I mean, it it was tiny by comparison. I think, uh, you mean, a bit of uh, cross cross the thingies there, metaphors. Just a few. There was no need to risk the fleet, which had a key role to play in defending the open German flanks from the possibility of coastal assault in the Baltic or North Sea in order to destroy a contemptible little army (laughs) that was doomed in any event. Um, So, who's in charge of the high seas fleet? Well, it's Admiral Friedrich von Ingenohl. Uh, and uh, what's he ordered to do, Gary, uh, in, in, in compliance with this overall policy? Well, he's ordered not to risk his ships, and he duly complied. The Germans believed that British were still committed to the idea of a close blockade of German ports. So they expected the Grand Fleet to appear off the German coast as soon as war was declared. Uh, and uh, what, 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 what do they fancy doing to the uh, Grand Fleet? There's a, there's, a, there's a highly complex term we often use that sort of summarises it. But what do you bear buckets? But what? <laughs> well, the, the, the chances of successfully launching submarine and destroyer attacks against the anticipated British blockade in the Heligoland Bight wet the German appetite. Yeah. They're, so they're planning a drip drip of losses to torpedoes and mines, and that would make the Grand Fleet smaller. <laughs> and then what would happen? Well, it'd be vulnerable to a decisive attack at the moment of Ingenohl's choosing. Yeah. Now, unfortunately for the Germans, that's not the British plan, is it? They're going to they're 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 uh, they're going to uh, they're going to um, do a distant blockade. Uh, so um, they they can't really employ that plan. But nevertheless, what do they do? They, they've got no choice. They stay in harbour. The high seas fleet stays in harbour, doesn't it? Yeah. And and the original tactic of trying to erode. The uh, majesty of the Grand Fleet through the use of mines and torpedoes, that also remained in force, although with far less chance of success. Now, meanwhile, with the high seas fleet staying in harbour, they're, they're relatively safe. Yeah, but the Grand Fleet doesn't. It doesn't attack, but basically it sweeps up and down the North Sea, trying to intercept any German effort to interfere with the passage and supply of the BF. But of course it never happens, because they don't. Uh, Now, there is one big raid. This is quite exciting. It's very early in the war as well. What's that? Well, on 26th of August, a major raid was carried out by elements of the uh, Harwich Force, supported by the 1st Battlecruiser Squadron, into the Heligoland Bight. Now, a confused action between the light cruisers of both sides was effectively resolved in the British favour by the thunderous intervention of Beatty's battle cruisers. Yeah, that must have been a bit of a shock for the German light cruisers when the bloody battle cruisers arrive, yeah. Um, so uh, the, the Germans respond to this by... They, they stop having advanced patrols in the Heligoland Bight. And how do they... Re, 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 what are they going to use to defend the Heligoland Bight from, from then on? Well, massed and impenetrable minefields that almost filled the Heligoland Bight. Yes. That's very difficult to say. Yeah, very difficult. So there'll just be a couple of passages through it, known to the Germans. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, pretty restrained uh, opening exchanges. Um, and then, uh, in September 1914, there's an incident that shows just how deadly German submarines can be. Uh, this is on the 22nd of September. And which submarine is involved here? It's the U-9 uh, which was uh, successful in sinking three British cruisers, the uh, Abuker, Cressy and Hogue, 
that were patrolling with the utter serenity and overconfidence that only comes with ignorance off the Dutch coast. The ships were not a significant loss in material terms. Serene today. (laughs) The ships were not, I'll say this again, the ships were not a significant loss in material terms, but their crews were. The death toll was unpalatable in the extreme. Yeah, because the, the ships are really, they're dodgy old protected cruisers, which are, is, they're not really protected. They're pretty awful stuff. Um, now, what it shows is that no dreadnought or battle cruiser could proceed safely without a proper destroyer screen. Why do they need destroyers? Well, they've got to keep down and harass any lurking submarines. The destroyers significantly formal, formally known as torpedo boat destroyers, were armed with their own torpedoes, which could cause havoc in an enemy fleet. So, so, so they're, 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 they're both, they defend the battle fleet, but they also threaten the opposition's battle fleet. Yes. Now, um, what the, so now they've now the, the, they've not only got to uh, provide they've got to they've got to provide constant cover against submarines. What does that cause? That's a big job. Well, an immediate shortage of destroyers, which is exacerbated by their limited sea endurance of just three days. In sharp contrast to the nine or ten days the ships they guarded could stay at sea. Things like the dreadnought. And how long could uh, could the wooden wall stay at sea from the nineteenth uh, century, eighteenth and nineteenth century? Yes. Yeah, wind. Yeah, wind. We've got lots of wind. Oh, that's made me think of Fred. There's a picture of him. Have a look. Now, Jellicoe was convinced that the Germans had a clear superiority in the number of available destroyers. Yeah, and that's the point. You'll notice the number in the high seas fleet was higher, and that's because British have got more destroyers, but they're all over the bloody place doing a million different tasks. Uh, Does he worry about it? Oh, yes, he's deeply concerned about this imbalance and he's convinced in a fleet action that could be initiated by the Germans at their uh, selected moment that the destroyers of the Harwich Force, nominally part of the Grand Fleet, were likely, unlikely even, unlikely, yeah. to be present. So That's he was, true. He so, was concerned about that. Yeah, uh, and there's another problem. Uh, surely the, uh, well, I don't understand it. Surely the Grand Fleet's safe. Now it's going to be at Scapa Flow in the Orkneys. Uh, out of the way of everything, it's completely safe, isn't it? Well, submarines, one word. Now, as Scarpa Flow had only recently been designated as a main base, no proper defences had yet been built, and German U-boats were soon sighted exploring the entrances of the harbour. Yeah, so you've got frequent submarine alarms, and uh, a lot of them are unfounded, because uh, submarine periscopes are always been, they're normally a chair leg or something, but... Uh, um, so, so while they're putting in place proper defences around Scapa, what, what does the Grand Fleet do? Well, it's got to make itself scarce, taking temporary shelter on the west coast of Scotland and even as far away as Northern Ireland. It's a bit undignified, isn't it? Well, it is, but the dreadnoughts were beyond all price. They couldn't be placed at risk uh, to the uh, depredation of submarine intruders, whose capacity for destruction was limited only by the number of torpedoes they could carry. Now, um, that's not his only worry because, uh, although they're superior, the, the Grand Fleet is definitely superior in numbers of dreadnoughts and battlecruisers on paper. We've said that. We've gone through the figures, but we've also mentioned that this advantage can be whittled away in the most unnerving manner. Why? What do I mean? 
Well, just as Tirpitz had predicted in the 1900 naval law, the Royal Navy, despite all its strength, had many responsibilities to fulfil, and it could not concentrate all its striking forces in the North Sea at a given moment. Um, the moment to be chosen by the Germans. So let, what sort of thing could go wrong? Why, why, why might ships not be there? Engine problems, the necessity for refits, and the sinking of the new dreadnought Audacious by a mine on the 27th of October all left Jellicoe with a superiority of just 17 to 15 dreadnoughts and a parity of five battlecruisers. Now, um, in addition, Jellicoe's got worries. Now, Jellicoe had been na- Navy... Co- we were worried what Comptroller was, uh, of, uh, the, but he, he'd, he'd, had a, he'd been a technical sailor and he's worried by the... In his view, he thinks German dreadnoughts are have better armour protection and superior underwater compartmentation. Um, he's, he's right, isn't he? He is right. So the, that smallest of advantages was, in fact, all but nullified. So they've got a very small numerical advantage which could be whittled away and which wasn't real anyway in quality of ships, in his view. Now, then, <laughs> events, dear boy, events, as Macmillan so memorably said many years later, um, what happens in December 1914? We've done a podcast on it. What happens? Well, it's the humiliating British defeat by the German East Asiatic Squadron at the Battle of Coronel. And now that prompted the post-haste detachment of three of the battle cruisers to extract re- uh, vengeance. The temporary loss of these ships severely tested Jellicoe's nerve. Yeah, it's only two of them that actually take on Vons, because the other one is, is elsewhere doing the same duty. But it, 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 Jellicoe was... Very, very worried. And when they come back, the, uh, after defeating the Germans at the Battle of the Falklands, uh, it's not a moment too soon, is it? Uh, no. And, and th- from then on, from then on, does the situation ease? I think it does, don't you? Yeah, so it's early in 1915. The strength of the Grand Fleet climbed inexorably relative to the High Seas Fleet as new dreadnoughts rolled off the stocks. Ironically, German reluctance to expose their precious dreadnoughts in the opening months of the war probably robbed them of their only realistic chance for a true naval victory. Yeah, but you'd have to... I'm not... You know, it's a... It's yeah, a theory, probably. Probably. I think you probably... It, it, probably. If they were going to win, that probably. would be... The, if they were going to win, that would be the time they had to do it. Probably. Probably. But they were relying on victory on land during that period, so... Yeah. Probably. Probably. Now, mean, perhaps. It was against this strategic and tactical background that Jellicoe began to draft and issue formal Grand Fleet battle orders to guide and coordinate his subordinates in action. Ooh. And what, what, what was his overall uh, um, attitude of mind? Well, we've mentioned it throughout. His uh, uh, preoccupations and generally cautious demeanour found their natural expression through these orders. And, and yeah. Now, his predecessor, George Callaghan, uh, he, he just, he, his Grand Fleet battle orders were little, well, they weren't called Grand Fleet, but the battle orders were little more than the review of the functions that each class of ship would do. But, but Jellicoe's got a very different approach. What he's trying to do is bring as much order as possible to the confusions of battle. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying, and I'm not sure that you can bring order to battle. Um, so, so what does it? What, what do the what? What are his Grand Fleet battle orders like? Well, through them, his subordinates would be given their orders in advance, 
These orders sought to predict almost any eventuality of war and to provide ready-made answers. So that's a, a very much a centralist position, isn't it? Yeah, and in this, Jellicoe reflected the preoccupations of the Royal Navy. For an organisation that worshipped leadership and assigned autocratic powers to the Admiral in charge, the Royal Navy was remarkably keen on stamping out all signs of individuality in junior officers. Yeah, from the moment they join, they're expected to fall in line, to excel in devotion to duty and rigid adherence to orders. Then, on becoming an, an admiral, it's like, like a butterfly. They've meant to sort of blossom forth with the instincts, inside, daring, command abilities of a new Nelson. Well, that's not how human beings work, is it? No. Now, in theory, Jellicoe recognised that no commander could exercise complete command and control in battle. Yeah. In theory. But his intellectual acceptance of the need for decentralisation, unfortunately, did not reflect the reality of Jellicoe's approach in practice. Yeah. uh, In anywhere, throughout the the orders, uh, the freedom to launch any sort of independent action is limited by a series of caveats and a and a list of special circumstances. And all of these are designed, well, designed or in effect, or what they do is they reinforce the habits of implicit obedience that had been inculcated throughout their whole careers in his senior officers. Um, and this is, exa- I'm afraid we're being a bit hard, I love Jellica, but we're being a bit hard on him here. Uh, there's something else makes it worse. Yeah, it's uh, it's exacerbated by Jellicoe's failure in all of the hundreds of exercises undertaken by the Grand Fleet over the next few years to ever rehearse the circumstances whereby independent action or manoeuvring might be required by a subordinate officer. Now, so for me, these exercises have got more in common with uh, you and your chums in the 1980s, uh, on, uh, you know, on parade ground drill under a regimental sergeant major. It's not individuals acting, it's it's... You're acting as a formed body of men, and these are acting as a formed body of ships. Uh, uh, it's not exactly a band of brothers, is it? Uh, guided by a common set of principles. They're guided by orders. Yeah? Yeah. Now, the need for control originated from Jellicoe's desire to enter combat in a single line of battle. Now, why would he want to do that? Well, any encounter would, as far as possible, be fought at long range to nullify the threat of torpedo attack and to rely on the massed heavy calibre guns of the Dreadnoughts to smash and pulverise the Germans before closing in for the coup de grace. So if you've got a line, then all your guns can bear. Well, not all of them, but well, that you can maximise them. Maximise the number of guns you can get to bear on the enemy. Right, or the Germans, who are not our enemies now, Gary. We love them. Now, Jellicoe was aware that when battle came, it might be difficult to bring it to a decisive conclusion. You mean the Germans might not cooperate? No, but he was determined not to take unnecessary risks in trying to secure such a victory. At the root of all his tactical thinking was the overall strategic position and his full acceptance of his personal responsibility to his country. And this is something that uh, uh, Admiral Jellicoe said. He said... Our fleet was the one and only factor that was vital to the existence of the empire. Yeah, basically, he's pointing out, uh, we're in an all-our-eggs-in-one-basket situation with the Grand Fleet. I mean, they've got a lot of other ships, but all the dreadnoughts are there. If they're sunk, and when, when Nelson fought at Trafalgar, that was one of three fleets. It wasn't everything. Um, the, the, the British Empire could not 
withstand the Grand Fleet being defeated at sea. Uh, and uh, and uh, Nor indeed the Allies. It wasn't just no. the British Empire. Yeah, the whole of the Allied strategy, you, how right you are, was underpinned by the command of the oceans guaranteed by the gla- gra- gra- Grand Fleet. They're, they are at the heart of everything. And uh, let's, let's just think about that for a moment. 
I intend to pursue what is, in my considered opinion, the proper course to defeat and annihilate the enemy's battle fleet, without regard to uninstructed opinion or criticism. The situation is a difficult one. It is quite within the bounds of possibility that half our battle fleet might be disabled by underwater attack before the guns opened fire at all, if a false move is made and I feel that I must constantly bear in mind the great probability of such attack and be prepared tactically to prevent its success. And it's not just mines and submarines, is it? There's destroyers as well to think about. Which are, uh, And he uh, he's basically worried about being ambushed in circumstances of low visibility or from behind smoke screens. Yeah, he's worried about everything mass attack by German destroyers. Um, and, and this is particularly the case if, as you mentioned, Gary, if the Harwich Force... Uh, is not there and they're detached they're further to the north uh, south sorry and they may not be able to rendezvous before the action began now how does the admiralty respond well uh, they respond on the 7th of november and they entirely endorse jellicoe's position this is what they said I have laid before my Lord's Commissioner of the Admiralty your letter of the 30th Ultimo, and I am commanded by them to inform you that they approve your views as stated therein and desire to assure you of their full confidence in your contemplated conduct of the fleet in action. So, right-o. That's it. Right-o. They yeah. didn't say right-o. No. Now, Jellicoe's there clearly outlined the tactical framework within which any battle would eventually be fought. Well, and this is the point that we're making. If you want to understand what happens at Jutland, Gaza, you have to, on the 31st of May, 1916, you've got to understand what's going on in September and November, you know, and these exchanges of letters in 1914, yeah? Absolutely, because they, they informed and underlay all of his actions on the 31st of May 1916. That's it. Now, having defined the parameters during which, under which he'd act, he begins an intensive programme of exercises. Now, what's he trying to bring? Do well, he's trying to bring the Grand Fleet, a little like myself, to a peak of efficiency. You are at the peak of your efficiency, yes. If manoeuvring, station keeping, signalling, gunnery and damage control were the language of naval warfare, then Jellicoe was determined that his men would be fluent in all of them. Yeah, and if there were any doubts about it within the Grand Fleet about Jellicoe, they're, they're soon washed away because it's it's obvious that he's a he's, he's he's hardworking, he's competent, he's brainy, and he's a decent man uh, with an enormous capacity for hard work, very much like yourself, as you have pointed out on many occasions to me. Now, Jellicoe had also made it clear to the Admiralty that they could not command the southern area of the North Sea. That domination had been sacrificed when it was decided to enforce a distant rather than close blockade of the German ports. So the, the, we've got command of the seas everywhere but the South North Sea. <coughs> <laughs> South North Sea. South North Sea. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the only dilution of, of that is uh, Beatty and the 1st Battlecruiser Squadron are moved from uh, uh, from uh, Scapa Flow to Cromarty Firth in October. Uh, why was that? Uh, well, it was thrown into high profile by the German decision to launch battle cruiser hit and run raids on the British East Coast. So yeah, so they're just basically they're just basically so in case the Germans raid and the Germans do start raiding very shortly afterwards. Uh, the first raid is a quick raid on Yarmouth, and you know you can understand people wanted to destroy Yarmouth on the third of November, nineteen fourteen. Ingenold decided to chance his arm further 
by bombarding Scarborough and Hartlepool on the 16th of December. What's he trying to do? Well, he's trying to draw out the Grand Fleet right across a newly laid minefield, which was exactly as Jellicoe had predicted. Now, however... Um, this is the great thing about warfare. It's complicated. The Admiralty have a, a powerful weapon, and that's intelligence, isn't it? Accurate intelligence of the enemy's movements. And that's so important. So how have they got that? Well, firstly, the Russians had passed to the Admiralty copies of the German cipher books and squared charts of the North Sea that they used for positional reports. Uh, how have they got them, Gary? Come on, quick, quick, quick. They got them from the German light cruiser, the Magdeburg, which had run aground on the island of Odensholm, in the Baltic, off the coast of Estonia. Brilliant. So what, they, they set up a, a, a group of decoding experts. Uh, this is all a bit uh, reminiscent of what happened in the Second World War, but of course it's not reminiscent of it at all. It's before it's it. It's preceding it, yes. Yeah. Uh, what's this room called? It's not called Bletchley Park, is it? It's called Room 40. What room it, was it in? It's in Room 41. Um, it was called Room 40, which soon mastered the German signal code, and it began to forward to the Admiralty Operations Division a constant stream of decoded signal traffic. Now, uh, uh, the Germans change it frequently, but how can they track it? Well, how can you tra- If a tra- code changes, surely you're back at square one. Well, a lack of wireless discipline, coupled with already identified routine patterns of signals, allowed the decoders to track their every twist and turn right through the war. It's not all, though, is it? Because uh, the, the, the British set up a series of directional finding wireless stations all along our east coast. Uh, and they could pinpoint the position of German ships every time they used their wireless. So basically, you've got one in one place and one in the other. And if you get the two lines where they cross is where the ship And that information was also channelled, I'll see what you've done there, channelled, see, uh, through room 40 to the operations staff. Now, there is a problem about intelligence. What what is the, well, obviously you've got loads of it, Gary, but what what do you have to use? Well, Well, you've got to use it effectively without jeopardising the the continued provision. If the Admiralty did not preserve absolute secrecy relating to the activities of Room 40, then the Germans would inevitably change their wireless protocol and codes so radically that all the advantage would be lost. So they'd really, they'd massively ramp up security and and that might, yeah. Now, um, so it's a goldmine of intelligence, so it guarantees success, doesn't it? Well, its first use uh, almost led... Uh, a part of the Grand Fleet to disaster, in fact. Yeah, 14th of December 1914, the Admiralty uh, was made aware that the first scouting force, that's uh, that's the German battlecruisers, commanded by Admiral Franz von Hipper, would set off on 15th of December 1914 to carry out a, another raid on the east coast of England. Uh, so who do they order? Do they order the whole Grand Fleet out? Do they, do they, do they? Well, they, they ordered Jellico to intercept them by sending Beatles battle cruisers, accompanied by the detached second battle squadron of six dreadnoughts, a more than adequate force to deal with five German battle cruisers. And what did Jellico want to do? Well, he wanted to send the whole Grand Fleet, but the Admiralty prevailed, and so the trap was set to catch the German battle cruisers off the east coast at dawn on the 16th of December. Now, unfortunately, it, the, the, the misuse of intelligence meant that it was the British that were almost trapped because Room 40 doesn't know the whole story, does it? They've, they've cocked up, in essence. What, 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 what have they missed? Well, they didn't realise that Ingenau intended to bring out the whole high seas fleet in support of the battlecruiser So raid. this could have meant that uh, the, the battle squadron and the battlecruisers were trapped 
by a superior German force. Uh, well, how do they avoid it? How, how, how do we get away with this, the British? Well, it's only through a combination of Ingenohl's pulsing amity Ooh. and sheer luck in the murk and mists of the foul winter weather that the British didn't lose the differential between the two fleet, fleets in one fell swoop. Mm. As it was, Ingenohl fled for home and Hipper was in turn lucky to escape from a vengeful beatty after a bombardment of Scarborough, Hartlepool and Whitby. Now, how do the British respond to this bombardment? Is it with the calm and equanimity for which the British are so long famous? Well, there was an outcry from the, uh, the, the general public, and that was whipped up and orchestrated by the more unscrupulous elements of the press in England. Yes, the, uh, the question was simple. Yeah, the question is, uh, how have we got... We've got the biggest, best, most powerful fleet in the world. How, how can uh, the Germans bombard our homelands and get away with it? I mean, that's the question the press are asking. But it's not fair, is it? Because the, we can't control everywhere. Uh, so what does the Admiralty do? This well, is rare. Well, to their credit, they ride out the storm, recognising the sheer stupidity of trying to guarantee the security of the whole East Coast. However, they do move beating the battle cruisers from Cromarty. Uh, oh, that's, uh, that's, yeah, I know that from the weather forecast. Um, uh, where do they go? Well, they go to a new base a little further south at Rosyth in the Firth of Forth. Uh, this would enable them to respond more quickly should the alarm be sounded again. Now the Germans, uh, they, 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 it, this 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 raid was it's a it's a defiant gesture, it's a near disaster, and it's a, a, a golden opportunity missed, uh, boosts morale. But uh, they they sort of they're not really just. I mean, the war's not going to be over, is it? So are they? Are there, is the fleet? Is the high seas fleet? Is it pulling its weight? Well, it, it, in the overall scheme of things, perhaps perhaps it was seen that they wasn't. So they couldn't resist trying again. So what happens this time? 23rd of January 1915, Ingenol sends out the first scouting force, battlecruisers and the Hipper, and they were going to try and entrap any British light forces sweeping through the Dogger Bank area. Um, uh, does, uh, what happens then? Once again, Room 40 warned the Admiralty that the game was afoot. Oh, dun, dun, dun. Now, um, the... Um, the, 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 again, overconfidence, we don't seem to learn. Beatty's sent out to intercept without the full and close support of the Grand Fleet. Beatty has with him his flagship, uh, which was that, Gary? We... The, the Lion. What, are they, what else does he have? Well, he's got the battlecruisers Tiger, Princess Royal, New Zealand, Indomitable, as well as the third battle squadron of pre-Dreadnoughts. That's going to slow him down. And the first cruiser squadron. And destroyers, of course, uh, yeah. Now, uh, Beatty is going to rendezvous with the Harwich force, more destroyers, close to Dogger Bank. Uh, so what happens? A dawn clash between the light scouting forces of both fleets on the 24th of January alerted Hipper to the likelihood of a British trap. And without hesitating, he immediately turned for home. Now, at 0750, Beatty sights the German battlecruisers. And who are they, Gary? You can say them. Uh, it's the Seidlitz, Moltke, Derflinger, and Blücher. Now they're long distance and uh, they're running away essentially it's a stern chase not 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 something that's strict and bad tempered it's uh, it's they're behind and they 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 they're straining their engines to the utmost you know and and that means a lion tiger and princess royal they're faster than the new zealand and indomitable and they they push ahead they they they're fat, they they begin to overhaul hipper um and what happens 
Well, as they come to a range of about 20,000 yards, they begin to concentrate on the Blucher, which is the ship uh, to the rear of Hipper's line. The back. Oh, the back. Right. Or so, rear. Or rear, yes. You, you. Now, uh, the Blucher, it's, uh, it's an unusual ship, isn't it? Yeah, it's not really a battlecruiser at all. It's a sort of strange hybrid built in a period immediately before the nature of the battlecruiser concept was realised on the launch of the Invincible. So you've got to realise that, that as each of the BT ships sort of begins to pass up, they, they all have a go at the Blucher before moving on to the next in line, which, you know, um, and, and by this time, soon the battle's properly joined. Now, we're not going to go into this, are we? Because this, there, there'll be, a, I'm sure, a podcast on the Battle of Dogger Bank in about five years' time. Um, but um, let's just look at the themes that are, that are noticeable. What would what you notice about the battle in your in-depth reading about it? Well, firstly, Beatty had quite correctly reasoned that if there was to be any chance of action, he could not keep his force together, but must allow the faster ships their head if they were to have any chance of catching the fleeing Germans. So that that's that's good. But secondly, uh, secondly, there's a big problem with the battlecruiser squadron fire. What is it? Well, largely, it was. Uh, inaccurate and they failed to distribute it evenly which not only added to the overall confusion but allowed the dangerous german concentration of fire to be developed on the lion leading the british line so they don't pick up they don't occupy all the german ships no and the lion was badly damaged her port engines failed and she slowly dropped back down the line of battle now then there's something that often seems to happen that chair leg surfaces again uh <laughs> Yes, so thirdly, an imaginary submarine was sighted and without hesitating, in accordance with the prevailing doctrine, Beatty turned his pressure ships sharply away, fearing a mass submarine trap. Now, finally, there's another endemic problem within the battlecruiser fleet, which is signalling and signalling discipline. Uh, the Lion drops out, but he tries to uh, direct his remaining ship. But it's a terribly embarrassing blunder because his signals, well, what are they? What's wrong with them? Well, they lack clarity and inadvertently prompted his four undamaged battlecruisers to abandon the chase and gather like a pack of dogs to finish off the badly damaged Blucher. Poor old Blucher. But that's the least important target. The other three ships are much more important. Uh, what does Hipper do? Well, he took his chance. He left the Blucher to an inevitable fate and he made straight for the safety of harbour. Yeah, he couldn't have done anything to save the Blucher, could he? Uh, is, it, is it a British victory? Hmm. Yes, but the farcical circumstances by which the Germans had been allowed to escape meant it was hardly an occasion for self-congratulation. Yeah, and the other thing is, it's it's enough of a success, and that famous picture, we'll perhaps put it up, uh, of the Blucher sinking, rolling over as she sinks. It's sort of, it's a fantastic thing for newspapers, that picture. It's all over the press and everything. Uh, what's the problem with having that kind of a success? Well, that it shrouds the real cause for concern. It was not properly recognised within the battlecruiser force that their overall standard of gunnery was inadequate. Yeah, now they, they, they hit the Blucher at short range with some 70 hits. I don't think they know. Uh, but in total, otherwise, the British ships only scored three hits, whereas the German uh, battlecruisers hit well, they've got 22 heavy calibre shell hits on the Lion and Tiger at the front of the British Lion. Ah, now, uh, so the German gunnery is better, uh, and this is serious. Now, there's something else that has a, a future impact. That's when the Seidlitz is hit. What happens when the Seidlitz is hit? And why is this, in a sense, bad for the British? 
Well, she suffered dreadfully from one of the two British shells that hit her. It crashed through the quarterdeck and penetrated the barbette armour of the aft turret. Here, it ignited the charges held in the working chamber. Now, that causes a flash, and it, it, it's spread in an instant into the magazine handling room. And desperate men, they're, they're trying to escape the flames. They futilely open the door. That leads to the superimposed turret. And this exported the disaster and combined, and, combined, and, and that condemns their neighbours. Um, the, 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 the flames go through right through both the turrets. Uh, and uh, and what and and it it nearly explodes a whole magazine. Um, 159 men are killed. And what what is the only thing that saves them? The uh, rapid flooding of the after magazine. Now, why is it? Well, that sounds great for the British. Absolutely brilliant. Well, except the Germans launched an investigation into the disaster that revealed the necessity for increased anti-flash precautions to prevent a flash travelling between a turret gunhouse, handling chamber and the magazine. They'd been lucky and they took advantage of their good fortunes to try to minimise the future risk on all their dreadnoughts and battle cruisers. Now, so... uh uh, uh, well, uh, uh, meanwhile, uh, the British have got no such warning. And uh, in fact, there's a, there's a lot of hubris about, uh, in fact, Beatty's uh, first uh, battlecruiser squad, and it's renamed the Battlecruiser Fleet. It isn't really a fleet, though, is it? Um, no, because that in- indicates an independence from the Grand Fleet, which it doesn't really possess. He is a subordinate to Jellicoe. Uh, now, the... Um, uh, so, so the Germans are alleviating the, the floor and, and the, the, the British are. In fact, the British do something else because the battlecruiser gunnery problems, um, they're, they're identified but in a sense. But what's done about it? Well, very little uh, because nothing can be done immediately to resolve the problem. Why not? Well, the relatively narrow confines of the Firth and Fourth where the battlecruisers were stationed simply did not have the space for gunnery ranges that could be defended against any possible incursions by German submarines. Yeah, I always like to say that if they if they fire their guns in the Firth and Fourth, they break all the windows in Edinburgh, which whilst might be amusing to us, might not be so amusing at the time. Um, now, the main body of the gun fleet, they, they, they can practice their gunnery in the wide open space of Scapa Flow. It's got lots of sploshiness around there. plenty, of, And they would have regular practice firing, but BTs wouldn't. So what, does, what, do, what do the battlecruisers do to try and make up for their inaccuracy? Well, they, by, they try to compensate by increasing their rate of fire on the faulty principle that pumping out more shells would inevitably lead to more hits while the sheer flurry of shells landing around their intended victims would blind them with water spouts. That's absolute dangerous and nonsense. Yeah, because uh, the, the margin of error, they're not missing by a couple of hundred feet. Uh, at Dogger Bank, they're firing thousands of yards over the target. Uh, this doesn't inconvenience anybody, <laughs> unless it's a hapless destroyer screen you know, perhaps to you know destroy a passage through, but it's it's more dangerous for some other reason. So you're trying to increase the rate of fire. What does that entail, Gary? Well, they cut corners in gun drill, particularly in the magazines and working chambers. The lids of ammunition cases containing the volatile cordite bags were often removed in advance to save vital seconds. Magazine doors were left open 
in order to not have to open and shut the doors. And perhaps worst of all, charges were piled up outside the doors, ready to be thrust in the hoists that took them up to the gunners. So oh, what you're dear. saying, what you're saying, to put it simply, is that while the German ships are improving their anti-flash precautions, uh, what anti-flash precautions the British had, which were minimal anyway, they were being carefully circumnavigated uh, to, to gain greater firing speed. So we're going... We're getting worse and they're getting better. Right. Now, although they only lost one ship, the fact that they were forced to flee rankled deeply with the Germans, despite the awe-inspiring gallantry of the Blucher's last fight. It was gallant. They fired to the... As I remember, remember we've commented on this with Von Spee's ships here, Sharnos and Gneisner. They're brave people, these German sailors. Uh, what happened then, uh, shortly after the battle? On 2nd of February, Admiral von Ingenohl was summarily dismissed and replaced by Admiral Hugo von Pohl. Make any difference? Uh, it didn't precipitate any real change in policy with regard to the deployment, or rather non-deployment, of the high seas so fleet, no. They basically stay in harbour. So what can the Germans do instead to affect the Allied war effort? Uh, well, what could they do? Mm, could they, they turn their uh, attention to the thorny problem of submarine commerce raiding. Oh, well, nothing could go wrong with that, can it? So, what on the 18th of February, they announced that any, from then on, any, any merchant ship, sorry, found in the war zone, which uh, basically surrounds the British Isles, would be sunk without the usual warnings. They used to have to, they were supposed to come to the surface and warn them and think, and uh, the rest of it. And the neutrals were warned of the severe risks inherent in passing through the zone. So, what happens then? Well, the unleashed U-boats are sent out, easily breaking the blockade to reach the Atlantic and Irish Sea, where they preyed on shipping in the western approaches to the British ports. Now, uh, surely we know what to do. We've, uh, we've, we've, we've had commerce raiders and things before. Uh, we've got a tried and tested method of, uh, of uh, sorting out. What should we have done and what didn't we do? Well, the Admiral, he had completely forgotten the painful lessons of earlier wars that commerce raiding is best countered by a system of convoys that gathers together potential victims and provides them with a strong escort force through any area of danger. Yeah, that would force the submarines to expose themselves to the accompanying destroyer escort if they want to attack the vulnerable merchant ships. Um, instead, every ship... It's just sent out willy-nilly. If they could mount a gun, they, they, they put a gun on, and, and all these ships are crisscrossing. They're trying to hunt down... The, the, the escorts are trying to hunt down the U-boats. The, the, uh, the, the, the ships are going... But they, the oceans are large, and, and the hunt doesn't work, does it? The beauty of the convoy system is if you want to sink merchant ships, you have to come to the escorts. Um, now, uh, there's another problem which is caused by this use of destroyers and on hunting submarines all here, there and everywhere. What's that? Well, it left the dreadnoughts vulnerable and forced the cancellation of the periodic sweeps into the North Sea. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the British don't have an answer at this stage, or indeed for a couple of years yet, to, to this really serious problem. Um, but then something happens. Uh, it's a blessing in disguise. Well, the German successes uh, are undermined by the risk of international outrage inherent in attacking ships without due warning. And in May 1915, the sinking of the liners Lusitania and uh, Arabic, with a consequent loss of life amongst American civilian passengers, brought a strong protest from the United States government. Yeah, um, now you could, I mean... It's basically the ultimatum. You either stop doing this or we'll declare war. And they do, eventually, uh, in 90, April 1917. Uh, but, but Germany doesn't want this. So what do they do? Well, 
Germany backs down and the U-boats were withdrawn from the Western approaches. During the unrestricted submarine campaign, the high seas fleet made only token excursion that excursions that barely cleared Heligoland before returning to port. In these circumstances, it was the prospect of recommencing unrestricted warfare that continued to exercise many minds in Germany. Yeah, so for the rest of 15 and into 16, the, the sea wars just stalls. The situation remains basically the same. Uh, and then everything changed in 1916. What is the impetus for this change? Which masked man strides onto the stage of naval warfare? Well, the departure of Admiral von Pohl with his health utterly broken... Responsibility, uh, yeah. Yeah, results in his uh, replacement on the 24th of January 1916 by Admiral Reinhard Scheer. Ooh, is he going to be important at the Battle of Jutland? He is, and so we arrive at the genesis of Jutland. Genesis of Jutland. Well... Thank you very much for listening to us, listeners. As before, uh, as you've been listening about the Navy, doubtless you're thinking, I'd like to read some some lovely stuff about the land war. What can we recommend for people to read about the land war? Well, the best way of supporting all of our podcasts is by purchasing our book, Laugh or Cry, uh, which is the uh, uh, British Soldier on the Western Front, 1914-1918, which does feature a, a reference to the Navy. Yeah, in one of the quotes, I seem to remember. Yeah, so, so if you want, yeah, that's the best way to uh, do some background reading on Jutland is to read about the land war. Absolutely, absolutely. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah blah blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pgmh or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?